Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a daily podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. We know the disease outbreak is peaking around now, which gives us cause for hope. But a research team at King's College London has found that Ireland and other European countries are at risk of a number of further waves of infection from COVID-19 until the population develops herd immunity. Dr Rosalind Moran is leading the King's College research team. Rosalind, you've just completed a study which pretty much tells us something we don't want to hear, haven't you? Unfortunately, uh, yes. I mean, like much of this pandemic to date, we've tended to be optimistic and been proven wrong. So um, maybe there's nothing unusual in in finding out more bad news. But hopefully more information is better than um, or at least predicted information is better than going forward in the dark. The rationale behind our study was to look at what is the population the proportion of um, the population in Ireland and in six other countries in the EU that are involved in the current outbreak to try and give us a sense of where we are on the road of this pandemic. So what is the question we're trying to answer here with this research? Yeah, so uh, I know modelling has been mentioned a lot recently in the media and perhaps it's been maligned, but I think uh, roughly a lot of the models have turned out to be quite accurate in terms of their predictions. And we've acted on some of this information as well as basics about uh, infection and epidemiology that allows us to basically see uh, where we might be in the worst case scenario and try and avoid that. Uh, But specifically what our research was looking at was what we are calling the effective population size. So I started looking at these models some weeks ago and noticed that what one does typically is guess a certain number of the population, say, of a small city of um, 100,000 people and then predict forward out of those 100,000 people how many will become very sick, how many might go to hospital. And what we did in this research was try and sort of ask what we call the inverse question or to try and take the data we have at hand at the moment from uh, Ireland's daily case reporting and, and daily reporting of deaths and try and estimate what was Uh, what we're calling the initial susceptible population. So how many have gone through the cycle by the time we get to the end of this so-called first wave? How many would have gone through the cycle of being exposed and infected and then coming out maybe immune, but maybe not immune, but at least have gone uh, through this um, infection cycle? And so what we did was use... uh, two models that gave us broadly the same ballpark answer for what size of the population is is currently involved in this uh, outbreak. So what did your research find on that? Uh, So looking at the data from Ireland, what we saw in our models was that a sort of optimistic prediction would be that around 17% of the population will have gone through the cycle at the end of this wave around the end of May, early June. Uh, and so you, your listeners may have heard of um, this so-called herd immunity, which I think is um, sometimes misinterpreted uh, as a strategy, but really it's just a sort of metric for how many people would stop this epidemic spreading throughout um, the country and their communities. And so uh, the estimate for this novel coronavirus is that it might be 60% of the population would have to have been infected in order uh, to have herd immunity or to stop uh, any further outbreaks in um, a a community. Uh, And so what we're uh, looking at or extrapolating from is that if this 
let's say 16, 17, 20% of the people have gone through it in this cycle, then there may be future cycles. So maybe two to three cycles coming after this one. If we sort of repeated what we had from February to June again and again, which uh, it's important to note isn't necessarily any sort of strategy or a, a proposal, uh, but rather it's a proposal that there there remains a lot of people potentially at the end of this wave uh, that still are susceptible to the disease. Uh, and so we want to take in factors that would mitigate against any further outbreaks that are, so do it differently to how we did it in February and March. Even more depressingly, you, you know, you're talking there about about three three waves being a kind of a best case scenario. If you use a different forecasting model, one in which fewer people were affected in the first wave and um, because of effective social distancing and so on. How, how many waves could we expect in that kind of worst case scenario? So in the worst case, the sort of um, the levels were around 6%. So in that worst case scenario, we were seeing uh, potentially nine to 10 of these uh, cycles, which you know, sound mathematical, but they're people's lives. And so, again, uh, at this lower estimate, uh, what we would expect is that there is potentially more than 90 percent of the population that could still succumb um, to the virus and, and subsequently to the illness. So that was our, our uh, worst case scenario, which was using a, a different model, a model uh, known as a dynamic causal model, which was developed uh, a little bit outside of the norm of the um, traditional epidemiological models. So um, the two estimates, I think, are still viable at the moment. The more optimistic estimate is tracking the Irish data a little more accurately. Uh, and so we may have a larger size of the population that have been involved in this outbreak. And also um, some news today from uh New York and other places is so basically what we're doing could be answered by a large scale serological survey. So looking at antibodies. So um, again, people will have heard of these tests and they're uh, not particularly effective. They're not effective tests for trying to stop an outbreak, but they just give you a sense of uh, how many people in the community would have been infected. So rather than using this model, which has assumptions built in and is based on noisy data that we're getting in terms of case uh, reports and potentially death reports, the sort of gold standard here would be to do these antibody tests, which would look across random samples of the population. And they're just starting that in New York State next week to see in one of the American epicenters whether maybe 20, maybe 40, maybe a lot of the population have been uh, susceptible and have gone through the cycle. And so um, I think what uh, people are doing this uh, antibody testing in order to get the kind of information we're predicting uh, from our model, but obviously will take time to get the samples, to process them uh, and to put the data together. Um, and then again, what we heard recently from the World Health Organization was that there's no uh, guarantee that anybody who has antibodies will be immune to a second infection. So uh, it still remains that um, this uh, idea of you know, being immune could be uh, um, optimistic too. That remains to be seen. Uh, we're all making that assumption that that immunity is conferred by having had the virus, but but we are hearing otherwise also. Does your study make the same assumption? Yes. Yeah, so the the assumption is 
that there is such a thing as herd immunity. It's mentioned in the paper, uh, while we caveat that this is itself an assumption. So we're we're um, we're basing it on the fact that we we th- we think um, there might be immunity. But again, this is not within the scope of this study to see whether that immunity is conferred and to what level and what level of antibodies one would need. Um, so th- those are remaining questions that. Um, that have to be answered before we can be sure that people who've had it before are um, are immune. You might explain to us a little bit about how herd immunity operates, Rosalind. Yeah, so I think a lot of people have heard of um, these R0 numbers recently when people are talking about the peaks of cycles and the effect of our uh, lockdowns and our social distancing. So um, what this is describing is how many people or um, would be get a secondary infection from one initially infected person. So it takes into account how many uh, people one meets in their, um, however they're behaving, either in their usual in our usual lives uh, that we had before lockdown or uh, in lockdown. And initially, uh, one person could infect three or maybe more. Uh, and then during lockdown, what we're seeing through governments throughout the EU is that we've pushed this R0 below uh, one, which means that one person is infecting less than one other person. And so our curves will start to drop like we've been seeing um, across Europe, uh, which is great news. What herd immunity does is effectively the same thing. So it'll bring your transmission rate down uh, because if you go to your office or to the supermarket uh, and you happen to sneeze at a certain time or cough, well, there's a, a probability that the person uh, that you may have transmitted to has, has already had the illness. And it can have quite a, a substantial effect if there's a large proportion of the population that have had um, the illness before, then the transmission chains are stopped. So herd immunity isn't any uh, special construct. It's just simply that the transmission chains from infected person to next infected person get broken potentially by having somebody in, in, the com- in, uh, in your office or community or supermarket who's had it before. So it's just basically um, a sort of statistical way of looking at transmission that they will just dampen down. And actually what um, the uh, work by Carl Friston, who developed the dynamic cause and model showed was that the effect of herd immunity, so the more and more people have it, it it's not necessarily a linear effect, but it's quite profoundly um, uh, effective in protecting people from transmitting uh, to further and further people. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a way that the chains are broken um, um, quite substantially. And so the herd immunity level of around 60% is where uh, these chains would basically go to zero so our outbreaks wouldn't occur anymore. But again, this is assuming uh, certain transmission factors and and, um, uh, with data that we still need to look at. So if some immunity is conferred by having had the virus, how does that change the picture? So really, um, just in the way I, de- I describe, so if someone has had the virus, then they're um, not part of this wave or cycle. So you saw this exponential growth back in um, February and early March in many countries in Europe and, and in Ireland uh, around mid-March. And we saw that exponential growth, we think, because nobody was immune to this uh, disease. And so everybody in the population could potentially get it. And we know that many people were asymptomatic uh, or had very mild symptoms uh, and so didn't realize they were sick. Uh, and so um, 
with the, the fact that there was no immunity in the community, it meant that it could just pass to uh, anybody. And so we had these large uh, rises of, of case numbers per day, which uh, peaked as we saw, um, or we think we've reached the peak. The model said that we're reaching the peak this week with around 720 cases per day, which is sort of tracking what this, um, the stats are telling us from the case reports that we know there's delays and so forth. Um, we're taking some of that into account in the models. Uh, but yes, so the fact that we had this uh, large rise uh, initially was because 100%, we think, of the population had no immunity at all. Uh, and so it means that the shape of the curves later for future waves isn't uh, totally certain. So there may be that they're slower. But then again, we also have to account for the fact that if we um, uh, release some of these lockdown measures, that there may be lots more people who have the infection currently than had back in, in February, where we started with a few cases uh, and, then it, and then it grew. So it's trying to understand what those cycles are that the, these studies are doing. Potentially, if we went back to total normality, uh, that they might be um, as severe as we had before or potentially more severe, depending on how many people start the cycle again. You've done this study for the UK too uh, and a number of other countries. How do we compare? So um, the, the death rates in, in Ireland are uh, quite low. So um, uh, in comparison to some of the uh, EU countries, so the, the predicted uh, rates um, in the first, uh, in this wave, and we hope it'll be the last wave, it were between 1,000 and 1,250 deaths. Um, and I think currently uh, today, unfortunately, we, we recorded um, the 571st person uh, to die from uh, COVID-19, uh, but it's still a relatively no, low number compared to some of uh, the other countries, even taking into account the, um, uh, the population differences uh, in, in these countries. And in terms of the, the number of waves that you have predicted in, for example, the UK, where would you be with that? So interestingly, the UK had uh, similar sizes of um, predicted uh, susceptible numbers at the end of this current wave. So uh, because the UK had more cases and this slightly uh, higher death rate, there was a little bit more um, of the population that had predicted through this model just to have gone through the cycle. So the UK and our model came out around 19% uh, at its most optimistic. So uh, showing that it had gone, potentially will have gone through more of the population uh, proportionately than it did in, in Ireland. Uh, but in terms of sort of within margins of error, the countries that we looked at were all very similar and they did take similar strategies in terms of the timing of outbreaks and how they um, uh, locked down, though there was differences of uh, um, some days. Uh, the general numbers were uh, about 20% at the most optimistic and about five at the least optimistic. And they didn't vary uh, too much. The one country that had much lower levels potentially were were uh, Germany, and they are now running um, some of the uh, earliest antibody tests. Uh, and so they'd be able to sort of confirm uh, or shed light or nuance what we found in our study. Uh, so they're running um, these antibody tests particularly in both random samples of the population and also in healthcare workers to see what proportion have been exposed. And then, you know, again, assuming that they may be immune and, and good to go back to, to um, work and into the community, for example. But also in Germany, they did one of the earliest studies in, in Gangelt, which had 
um, which hosted this carnival and had one of the epicenters in the initial German outbreaks. And what they uh, found, and again, this is also unpublished work, and I should mention ours is also um, uh, not yet peer-reviewed, though we have it on MedArchive, uh, we're awaiting peer review. But this study in Germany has looked at immunity levels around this carnival area, uh, which is on the border with the Netherlands, and found uh, that a couple of weeks ago, immunity levels were around 13%. Uh, or, or sorry, antibody positive, um, I should say, uh, levels were around 13%. And so uh, the authors of the study are putting that forward as a potential immunity level within that community. What should the impact of this modelling be on our own exit strategy, Rosalind? Um, I think all modelling studies need to be evaluated with caution and care. Um, they are based on, as I said, noisy data and assumptions of what we know about the disease, like how many days you can be infectious for. But the broad picture, I think, is what people have been hearing for the past number of days, that uh, really we're going to have to um, uh, keep this or zero number down because we don't have uh, the sort of, or we potentially don't have the sort of community levels of immunity that we may have to go back to work straight away. And so I think what it uh, calls for is... um, Uh, developing the sort of strategies that you've seen in places like South Korea, where there's very, very few cases per day and and as a result, fewer deaths, uh, so that you can contact trace uh, and do the um, PCR test, so the actual viral test, to see if someone has the disease and may be infectious today and stop any outbreak. So that would take a a community effort. It will take lots of um, infrastructure and planning, which I'm sure the government are putting in place. But it needs to be, I think, proactive and probably local um, in order to identify cases very, very early that if we've if we manage to do what we've done now and suppress these numbers um, by being um, uh, in this lockdown state, that we try and preserve that um, uh, those low numbers. But if if we if we don't have a strategy of of really identifying who may have it uh, as we try and exit this phase, then we may see these second waves as we've as, as I've mentioned. This study must have been carried out in a short time frame. Do the findings come with qualifications? Oh, yes, absolutely. We have um, uh, quoted at the end of the study that this was done in haste. And this is sort of one of the most peculiar times in science that I've seen where your um, research that may take typically uh, six months has now got to take you a week because um, people are making decisions and we have to have a as best data as we have. And so what our group have contributed here, and I should say our our group includes lots of scientists from uh, King's College London and University College London, is one potential piece of the picture that might be considered um, when making plans about exiting uh, lockdown and how we deal with it. But it's uh, one study. It does sort of gel with some other of the imperial models that you may have heard of from Neil Ferguson's group in terms of numbers of um, cases and numbers of deaths that we've predicted in the UK. But the um, the caveats certainly should be that these are just statistical models and they make Um, They are definitely no substitute for the biological assays, which everyone is uh, really uh, focused on. So getting these uh, PCR tests to see where the diseases are now. And also if we have the resources to get this antibody testing to give us a picture, a big picture of where the uh, country has been in the last couple of months in terms of who has been affected. Rosalind, from what you're saying, we face the prospect of potentially another 18 months of, you know, living our lives in in this way. Is that a realistic prospect? 
No, I think that's um, maybe the wrong way to think of this research. What this research is saying is that um, we need to change uh, our methodology. So we need to uh, not, I, what I don't think is that we'll have release and lockdown cycles and keep doing lockdown cycles until we get to the end of this road. But what we need to do instead uh, is change our approach so that we're really, we know exactly where infected people are. We're contact tracing everybody. So what this lockdown has done has allowed everybody to realize what's in front of them and get on top of it and try and find um, the infected cases, identify who they are and give everyone, um, if you like, uh, time to organize so that they attack this um, uh, second uh, phase of this outbreak in a different way. So the, the other way to do it so that we can all live our lives would be to have the traditional methods of um, uh, infection control where you're identifying very small cases where potentially you're doing checks at airports and so forth, but that you're allowing people to go about um, their lives so long as you have this big infrastructure underneath that's checking on this uh, infection uh, all the time and, and, and everywhere. Uh, and so what I think this research is saying, rather than that we're going to have this wave and it's going to repeat and our lives are going to be like this over again and over again, rather what it's saying is that we need a new strategy and we definitely need to consider uh, a different way of managing it rather than just having us socially isolate and um, and close all businesses and, and schools and so forth. Uh, we need to think of how we can do it uh, by doing the old fashioned methods. Uh, and then just to come back, as you said, the um, the modeling studies, uh, they have uh, caveats. And if you think of what we're saying now, like uh, the um, the team in Maynooth and Philip Nolan and, and his team have looked at uh, or had projected far worse case and death numbers than we're seeing now uh, in Ireland. And, and that is because we've in, implemented these uh, new ways of living. Uh, and what our model hopefully is saying, even though there may be more cycles, they won't happen because we'll have implemented a new way of managing infection and identifying it very, very early before it can be uh, infectious in the way it was when we didn't really understand what we were um, up against. Thanks very much, Rosalind. My thanks to Declan Conlon, who produced today's podcast. And thanks for listening. Stay up to date with the latest developments at irishtimes.com. We'll be back on Monday.